You can have a seat. We'll be in Psalm 16, the, the psalm I read. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. If not, it'll be on the screen for you in just a second. It's good to be with you today. You know, there are some methods that we've come up with cooking and preserving food that have just stuck around. Um, even though we have refrigerators and don't really need to preserve it, unless we're going on a hike, or maybe you're hiking a trail. But think about this, the glories of beef jerky, right? I mean, it comes in all these different flavors, and it is delicious, and you can take meat with you wherever you go. Beef jerky is awesome. However, if it has not dried and preserved... It could get funky in a hurry. Let's just say today you went to, the, to Piggly Wiggly, okay, and you bought yourself a pot roast before you came to church today, and you left it in your car. Well, you're starting the cooking process, but don't eat it, okay? Because if it's set in your car all day long and you decide to cook it tonight for dinner, you would probably get violently ill. And if you were to leave that thing in your car for a week or two at a time, when you open that car door, what would be that smell? Putrid meat. But if you leave beef jerky in your car, which I have many times, you can leave beef jerky in your car for three months and still eat it. May I be recommended, but you can. I'm reminded of a story from my youth minister days. Now, this was not my fault. I like to go ahead and put this out there. One of we, we did a fear remember that show Fear Factor when that was out and big? And people used to used to do these and, and so youth ministry, if it's gross and and get some laughs, you gravitate towards that. So we were at a camp in Macon, Georgia, which is one of the hottest places on the planet. I think there's like like there's a reason the devil went down to Georgia because he liked the climate, you know. That's I've said that before. It's hot there. And so we were doing this camp. And we, we, we rented a bunch of mice and rats from a pet store. You could rent them, okay? We had to pay full price. We brought them back. We got half our money back, okay? Didn't know that. Go try it, okay? If you want to try out a mouse or a rat, you can do that. So we rented these mice, and what we did is we had constructed a big coffin, and we put kids in the coffin, and they laid there, and we put the mice and the rats on them, and they had to see if they could make it through the allotted time. And that was awesome, okay? It was really cool. So we, at the end of this, we took the mice back. And it was in one of the youth pastor's cars. His name was Jeff. And what, lo and behold, the story gets kind of gray here is what happened. But let's just get to the end result. A mouse got loose and was in his Jeep Cherokee in Macon, Georgia, the hottest place on earth next to, or hottest place in the world, Okay. And it stayed there for a week while we were at camp, the whole week. When he opened his car door, and he had no idea that the mouse had gotten loose, he opened the door. It was putrid, just the worst smell that you could imagine. And it took them, I think he had to even sell the car. I don't remember how the story ended, but it had decomposed to that degree. That's awful, okay? Hilarious a little bit, but mostly awful, okay? And I want you to think about this. Without, without something to preserve us in our life, in our faith life, we will deteriorate. We will rot. We will become putrid unless we have something to preserve us. And in Psalm 16, David calls out 
to God for him to, to be preserved. David, we see in Psalm 16, it says a mictum, which is a word that, that scholars are debating what it means. It basically means a writing of David. And so this is, this is written by King David under the inspiration of the Spirit. And the first thing he says and the first thing that comes out and he cries out to God is this, Preserve me, O God. Don't let me deteriorate. Don't let me see corruption. Don't let me fall away. We don't know if this was a, and here's the beauty of most of the time when we have the Psalms of David, we don't know exactly what was happening in his life. We can go back and read in First and Second Samuel what happened in his life, and, in the, and so we can see some of those things that happened to David. We don't know exactly the life situation, but he was in a place where he said, God, preserve me. If you don't come and keep me, if you don't come and keep me from being destroyed, keep me from rotting away, I'll be done. So he says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge, the one you run to. We know what happens when, when we're seeking refuge. The number one way we seek refuge is from rain. You ever been outside? Or go, heaven forbid, you go to school when it's raining, and everybody's like, when you're trying to pick up your kids, nobody wants their kids to get wet because they think their kid would melt, okay? Oh, no, it's rain. we got to take refuge in the car, refuge under here, okay? It, it, it's, we try. That's the number one thing we take refuge from. It shows you how blessed of a country we are. That we have, the only thing we have to go and take refuge from is a little bit of rain. But you know that feeling. It's raining. What are you going to do? You're going to run for that umbrella. You're going to run for that awning. And so what David sees is that there's a refuge for perseverance, for, for being preserved, and it is God. And then he says these amazing words here. He says, he, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. So I want you to get this. David recognizes something, that God is the only one that can preserve him, who can keep him, from fa- can keep him from falling, can keep him from his faith falling apart, can keep him from the situations that are in front of him, from chewing him up and spinning him out and him seeing decay and corruption. David notes that there's only one person who's a refugee, and it is God. He also notes this, that, there is no, that he has no good apart from the Lord, which we have the, the covenant name Yahweh here. So what we have when he's saying this is there is only one person in whom I get good from, and it is God. So I want you to just understand something. Anything good we have is from the God from whom all blessings flow. And I know sometimes that takes it, it, it hurts our American sentiment, our American sentiment that says I pull myself up from my bootstraps. I'm independent. I can do this on my own. And there's a good spirit about that. But I want you to get this: that we are completely dependent on the God who gives us what we have, including our health, our abilities, the place you were born. You know, you did not pick where you were born. You didn't pick it. You didn't pick your parents. It just it happened to you. It was the will of God working. Through, through common means to move you to the place you are. So you could be born with the same intelligence level. And there's a lot of smart people out here, okay? I could tell. You could be born with the same intelligence level, with the same work ethic, but be born in a country where you have no opportunity and you would amount to not much in the world's eyes or economically. Do you realize, do you realize this, that everything good we have is from God? One way or the other, he's given, the, given us the ability, the health, the goodness, the family, whatever. 
He's given us even ways out in difficult situations. David recognizes this, that everything is from God and anything good is from him. It's akin to what Jesus says when he says, I am the vine, you are the branches, you can do nothing apart from me. Like nothing good can come unless we have been given it from the one above. So I want you to get this. How will you be preserved? How would you be preserved? There's some answers that people give you. How will you, how will you make it in life? How will you get over the difficulties in life? How will your life ultimately amount to something? Well, people give you different answers. The self-help people give you the answer like, just be your best you, whatever that means, okay? You ever thought about that? Sounds good. I should be my best me. If you could, you would. You're not, so you're not, okay? Best me. That's just crazy positive thinking stuff, okay? I can think positive all I want to, but a Mercedes is not going to come into my yard from positive thinking, okay? It's just not going to happen. So positive thinking can't be it. There's another sect of people who are more religious that think follow the rules, and you'll get that. And yes, obeying God is good, but knowing God is better. Because in knowing God, you obey like you should. And you don't obey because you fear the hand that will come back and slap you. You, you come and you obey because the hand who, that has reached out to you. And so here's the answer. The answer to what will persevere us is God. And it's knowing God. And David knows him as a refuge he seeks him as the one who could persevere him, and he sees that all of his goodness, all the goodness that he could ever have comes from God. He says, apart from God, I have nothing good. And so it's a change of thinking that needs to take place, that you don't need to be better. You don't need to be more positive. You just need to know God. And how do you know God? Through his word through his spirit working within us. And David here, he is asking, he said, we are preserved. How do we make it through life? By knowing God and his goodness. And then he goes and he kind of tells us what it means to know God. And he says, God, there are all these things. So look in verse 3 and 4. In knowing God, there is fellowship. Now this is a weird turn, but I think it's, we'll understand the truthfulness in it when we see verse 3. In knowing God, there is fellowship. And we see this in verse 3. As for the saints in the land... They are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrow of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their name on my lips. And so it takes a weird thing. God's persevering me. There's only good in him. He is my, my whole, everything is in him, all my good. He's my refuge. He's the one that preserved me in difficult times. Then he goes, man, I tell you what. All the holy ones, the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Isn't that a weird transition, if we're honest? You've ever had those conversations with people? If you ever have a conversation with me, it's quite likely this will be the case. We'll be talking about something, and I will see a squirrel, and I will talk about something else. It just happens. Every, com every conversation I have is tangential, okay? I'm going to go off on a tangent somewhere, all right? And so you may do this. And so it may seem like the psalmist has gone off on a tangent for a second, but he recognizes something, that, that God, in persevering us, he gives us fellowship with other believers, and that is one of the chief ways that he perseveres us. He uses other people, other holy ones, to be blessings in us, to help us persevere and to keep going in our faith. 
And I want you to show this again. Verse 3 says, and for the saints in the land, the holy ones. Are they holy in and of themselves? No, they're holy because God has made them holy and set them apart. So when he's talking about the land, he's talking about the promised land, which is ancient Israel in which David had been the leader and king, okay, of the United Kingdom there in Israel, okay? Not the United Kingdom now that we think of, of like the UK, okay? I just want to be clear about that. It's like, this guy's really off. David was not the king of England. I know, okay? The United Kingdom of Israel, okay? He was over these people, and he, because God set them apart as the chosen people, He saw them to be holy in God's sight because God had set them apart to be holy. Then it goes on to say they are the excellent ones. He says not only are they holy, but they are excellent. And then it says in whom is all my delight. He delights in the people of God. Now, some of you might have had a bad experience amongst the people of God before. Some of you may have had great experiences. In fact, some of you may have predominantly good experiences around the people of God, but you've had a few bad experiences that have made you go, I don't want to be a part of the people of God at all. But I want you to know this, that right after David has asked to be preserved, right after after David has asked for God to keep him, to be a refugee, to be his refuge, and right after he said, God, you've given me all good things, and all good things come from you, he mentions the people of God. So I want you to get this. The people of God are a blessing from God meant to help us persevere in our faith. David saw them, and he delighted to be amongst the people of God. So there's a couple of things. First and foremost, you've been hurt people of God. The people of God are holy because God made them holy. That doesn't mean they're always right. Okay? And if you're going to judge it by that thing, if you've ever screwed up, then you are just, you just can't do anything good then. Have you ever been in a church that screwed up? Well, have you, do you need grace? You know, it's funny how we typically treat other people's wrongs a lot differently than we do ours. One person wrongs us, I'm never going to see that person again cutting them out of my life. I'm going to be a life surgeon. Cut that cancer out. Get them out of here. But when we mess up, man, everybody makes mistakes. I'm not perfect. Double standard from our wicked hearts. The people of God are a great great blessing. They're holy ones. Are they holy in the meaning that they're perfect? No, but they're set apart by God for the love of God, and David delights in them. And if you really become, and if you really try hard to become part of a fellowship, you will see some bad behavior, guaranteed. But you will also see repentance, which means turning from that behavior. You will see forgiveness, because forgiveness can't happen unless there's some bad things that happen, right? So you'll just see forgiveness, evidences of the grace of God in those, in those lives. Plus, you will see outpourings of love when you are truly a part of a fellowship that, that exalts God and tries to love their neighbor. You will see that. And if I want you to know, I want to I mention these things, and I don't do this to brag our horn, brag our horn, that makes no sense, toot our horn, okay, or to brag. But I, I want to know, when we've had people that have been ill, our church has turned out with meals. We don't know what else to do. We throw food at you, okay? We do that a lot. You feel bad? Eat something! <laughs> and it happens. And you might have gotten missed one time or the other, okay? Because we're not perfect. One, you know, I've seen the love of God. I've seen the love of God in my life from the people of God. And I've seen some bad things in church, okay? I've done a lot of different things. I've seen some people act ugly. I have seen some repentance and forgiveness. And I have seen God at work in his churches. Even some of those churches that seem like they're dead, God's still at work. 
There's a joy that should be amongst the people of God when we gather together and we, we fellowship with one another and we open our hearts to one another, that that is one of the ways God preserves us, doesn't let us deteriorate and rot. That's why you can't forsake the meeting of the saints. You have to be a part of the body and try to be a part. And I know you might be having problems becoming a part. Just keep showing up because the grace of God will hopefully work and build us into this place that is a delight. And so I want you to see that, that there is in God there is joy and goodness because we have fellowship with one another. And it's different than the fellowship we have in the world. Look in verse 4. So there's a, there's a juxtaposition here. There is a comparing and contrasting. He says, as for this, in verse 3, he says, As for the saints in the land, there are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. A delight in the people of God. However, in verse 4, he says, The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. This is not a curse. This is an observation. He's saying this, that those who run after another God, they will have a multiplication of suffering. And he goes on to say, their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their name on my lips. Okay, and so I want you to get this, this really clearly. He, I don't think he's declaring a condemnation. He's de- declaring a reality. To run after the one true God, to go after him, there is, ho- there is holiness, there is goodness, there are difficulties, yes, but ultimately, your life will be, will be surrounded by the goodnesses of God. But there is another way to live, and that is a way that you're seeking after other God, whether God is self or whether it's a real idol, that will lead ultimately to destruction. Now, David has lived amongst the Philistines for a while so at some point in his life, and he is, he is also, he does, not just to have to live amongst them, he has seen the pagan nations that are around him. Some of the pagan nations around him practice child sacrifice. And if you look at the history of the world, pagan nations have done some, or pagan cultures have done some terrible things to people. I mean, you have to look no further than, than, than to go to the Mayan ruins and know that those temples were used for human sacrifices and to think about how nasty that would be. And you think about the child sacrifices that were taking place of the people who were inhabiting the place that now Israel had in the land of Canaan, the child sacrifices they used to give and offer. And so that is an extreme situation in which he looks and says, that's destruction. Could you imagine the terror of having a child in a society in which they murdered infants and babies? That child would be taken away because you had a bad crop season and they want to appease the gods. They take that god and they burn it on an altar to Molech like they would have in the Old Testament time. you imagine the sorrow? The sorrow in the name of trying to appease a god? you imagine how the multiplication of sorrows that would happen? Now, let's, now that was in this time, but now that is not as prevalent amongst us. I mean, that's not something we're doing. But can you, th- there's destructive tendencies all throughout other belief systems, and, it, and, and, and they, they point us and pull us away to God, and they are, lead to destruction. And so the people of God are this shining light, a city set upon a hill to the world of what goodness it should be like. Are we perfect? No. But when we follow the Lord, we are not going down towards a multiplication of sorrows. We are going towards a multiplication of joy and a true holy life. There is great perseverance. God preserves you by giving you the good gift of fellowship with the people of God. 
And following another way leads to sorrow. The Bible is replete with that thing. Secondly, we see this, that in knowing God, this one God who gives all good, we see contentment in verses 5 and 6. He goes on and says in verse 5 and 6, the Lord is my chosen portion. Now that, that, um, that word chosen here, when we think of chosen, first off, we think of our choice. Do you know why? Because we are replete with choices. Okay, we have choices everywhere. We went to Chili's the other night, and they now it's they give you at Chili's, they give the kids a menu that they can write on, okay? It's like their placemat, and they give you this double-sided crayon, and it's pretty neat. You get one crayon, but it's got two colors on it, okay? I think that's pretty neat. I guess they meld them together. I don't know. I'm not a uh, crayon manufacturer, but it's pretty neat, all right? So give them this crayon, and it's got these different sections on the menu, and Judson could go, my son could go on and just mark what he wanted. There are at least 12 choices Plus, all the different varying options could go, I guess, over 100 choices. I don't, you can do the math, somebody, of how many things he could eat. He could have grilled cheese and french fries. He could have a grilled cheese with celery. He could have a grilled cheese with, with orange slices. He could have chicken with orange slices. He could have this. It's crazy how the kids' menu had that many choices. Have you ever been to a cheesecake factory? They hand you a novel. It's like War and Peace. It's like, here's our menu. We have 17 trillion cheesecakes. Would you like one? Pick which one you want, okay? There's, we're replete with choices. So when we see chosen here, we think that the Lord is our chosen portion, like we chose. No, this is saying the Lord is my allotted portion. He, he is, he, this portion has been allotted to us. I want to be very clear about that, okay? Because that is when we hear the word chosen, we think our choice. Most of the time when you hear chosen in the Bible, it's God's choice. And so here is what he's saying here. The Lord has, is my allotted portion. The Lord is what is the inheritance I've been given. The Lord is this treasure that has been given to me. He is what's been allotted to me. And then it goes on to say, and he is my cup. And then it goes on to say, you hold my lot. Verse 6, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. And this has an image back into the Old Testament. When the people of Israel came, when, the, when, the, when God's people, the Israelites, came into the land of Israel, the land of Canaan, what God did is he divided up the lands based on markers and give, give all of the different 12 tribes of Israel, he gave them a different portion. Okay? Except for the tribe of Levi. He gave them God as his portion. Okay? God, that was the priest, and he got, they got God as their portion. Okay? Which, you know, everybody else is saying, look how much land I got. And they're like, they can get super, they can do a super Jesus juke. You know, they can really get real spiritual. Oh, yeah. Well, God's our portion. You enjoy your land. God's ours. More spiritual. Okay? So they could have done. <laughs> they probably did. All right? They were the priests. All right? We got this situation in which, and if you want to go read this in the Old Testament, <laughs> Enjoy, because there's literally, they're talking about all the boundaries for chapters. And it goes from this river to this river to this spot to this spot. And each of the tribes have these different boundaries that were allotted to them. 
That's why I told you this should be understood as the Lord is my chosen portion. The Lord is my given portion, okay? So he is what has been given to me. He's my cup. He is this wealth. He is this contentment. And then in verse 16, following those lines of, 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 those lines of demarcation, the lines that we see here. I'm sorry. I have a thing with my hands. I realize that I, like, I don't know what to do with my hands. It's very awkward. But I'm trying to get you the fact that there was borders. You following me? You there? Nobody's there. That's fine. All right. In verse 6, it says the lines, because this doesn't make sense unless you have an Old Testament background here. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. The lines that the, law, the Lord has drawn are good. And we know he's, you know, David's from the tribe of Judah. They didn't get a very big portion of land, actually. But he's using this as a metaphor, okay? The dividing of the lands is seen as a metaphor here to talk about what the Lord has given me, what he has brought my way is good. He has drawn the lines of my life in such a way that there is joyful. It's joyful. What does it exactly say? Let me read it again. He says, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places, Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. So he's saying, my life, what God has given me, especially in the fact that my inheritance is God, is he has given me, he has made the lines of my life, the boundaries of my life, what has come into my life, he has made them pleasant and good. Now, before you think, because some of you are in here today and you've got, you got big burdens on you, you're thinking, I don't know if I could say my life is like all the lines of my life, the boundaries of my life are pleasant and good. All the lines, that, all the things that brought, God has brought into my life, and they are good and pleasant. How can David say that? Well, I want you to look off first off. His, he is saying this in the midst of a tough life. Now, he's had a good life in some regards, but he's had a tough life. Do you remember how he was chosen? He wasn't the best looking or the oldest in his family. He was the runt. You know what he was doing? He was tending the sheep. Do you know why the youngest was tending the sheep? Because nobody wanted that job. You know why? Because sheep stink. And you had to go when you, tend, when you were tending the sheep, okay? It's not that we get these, like, Thomas Kincaid precious moments ideas about sheep, okay, where the guy's sitting on this beautiful hillscape with that crypt, you know, staff, and he's looking out over the sheep, and there's a beautiful moonlight. No, it's the stinking Middle East, they have to sleep out there with those things. Have you ever been around a sheep or a goat? They're gross. They're disgusting. They pellet everywhere. It's a mess. And you got to sleep out there with those things. There's a reason the low man on the totem pole was out there. And he didn't even get brought up when the prophet was going to anoint the next king. They had to go get him, go fetch him. They anointed him. And then when he became king, his, when he was anointed king, everything was good because God's favor was on his life, right? No, there's this dude named Saul who was already king who did not want to give up his kingdom. So you know what he did? I'm going to kill David. So he's getting chased through caves and around, and he, there's all these weird situations that happen, and he runs in. He, he's married to this woman, and he divorces this woman. He's married to this woman, and he's with Bathsheba. He sins, and so his life, man, is kind of rough. And then after that, after his family goes into turmoil, then one of his sons, Absalom, decides, I'm going to chase him around too. So he leaves and runs around with his warriors, and there's all this war and stuff. And he, this is the same guy who says, 
the lines have fallen for me. The lines of my life, the borders of my life that God has set are pleasant. Okay. What? They're pleasant because David has found utter contentment in his God. This is an elusive thing for us, but when we find it and we see it, especially in dark moments, we see what is the greatest thing in our life is the fact that we can know God and the joy of knowing him. And David said, the Lord is my, why, does, why can he say that my lot has fallen in good places? Because the Lord is his portion, even with all his breaking loose. The Lord is there. He is our inheritance. He is what we have. He is what's been given to us. We know the Lord. He is our cup. He is that which we get sustenance. He is our lot. The Lord has seen it fit to let us know God and not to stay in our sins and to know him and not to chase after false idols or other ways. That is the Lord. And so he can say that the lines have fallen in pleasant places, not because his life has been pleasant, because there has been his life has been replete with trouble, but because he says in verse 6, indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. What is his inheritance? It is the Lord. And when God takes away something from us or when God brings difficulty in our lives, it is not to destroy his people. It's to remind them of what is most important and that knowing God is the best. And to be content with whatever he brings our way is for his good for our good and for his glory. And if not, if, even if our life just disintegrates into terrible, we have a God that will not let us see decay. We have to find contentment in where we are knowing that our God is on the throne and he is making the lines fall in pleasant places for his kids. And if nothing else, even if your life is in shambles, you still have an inheritance in him that is everlasting and cannot be destroyed. Goes on in verses going down. He says in verse 7, we see that God is his counselor. In verse 7, he says, that I, there, there's, I'm preserved by knowing God because God is my counsel. In verse 7, he says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel, instructions. He praises God because the Lord gives him instructions, instructions on how to live and how to navigate life and how he should govern the kingdom and how he should govern his life. He says the Lord is his counselor. Counselor. How many of us... When we guess something bad happened to us, have that one person that serves as our, um, how would you say, uh, our counselor, okay? Our, our untrained counselor, usually, okay? Just think about it. Have a bad day. Super bad. Who's that first phone call to? Hey. <laughs> hey, Aim. <laughs> Had a bad day. Not feeling it. You go to that person, what you do, you tell them your problems, and you hope that they give you some advice in return. However, God is seen as the great counselor, and we, and we think, well, I don't hear him speak when I talk to him. I don't, I don't hear his voice, which is good, because if you're hearing voices, you might need help, okay? But he, we can speak to him freely. The Bible has tell, told us that, and he has spoken definitively. 
and it is his word. So, if you're in the situation, and David sees God as a counselor, okay, if you're in a situation in which you need a counselor, and you're saying God is not fitting the bill as a counselor, let me ask you this question. Have you read your Bible? And some of you are thinking, that's your answer for everything. Read the Bible. You know why? Because most people don't. And it's funny. It's like, it's like going out to play a team sport without having eaten in weeks. And you're wondering why your kid can't push the other kid out of the way. He ate in March. He's been able to knock that other kid out. This is Charles County. We're good at football. Yellow Jackets. Woo! Hadn't ate till Mar- since March. They can't push people out of the way. The Lord is our counselor. So there's this idea that his word is counseled to us. He can, he, to David, he had other counselors. He had friends, yes. But his great counselor is the Lord. And the greatest advice, your friends could give you awful advice, and largely they do, okay? Let's just be honest. Every now and then, it's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like spinning around with a water hose. Every now and then you'll get somebody wet, okay? That's what advice from your friends is like. The, Lord, the advice from the Lord is from him. It's good. It's definitive. It's from God, through man, but exactly what the words needed to be. And so we know that it is good counsel. And so we see that he says, I bless the Lord for he gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. So this idea that the Lord gives me counsel, and in the night my heart instructs me. Now that sounds weird. And, and, and the heart here is kind of added because our seat of emotions is our heart. Their seat of emotions was their kidneys, which is weird. Okay? But if you think about it, you ever felt something down deep? You ever been nervous about something? Where do you feel it? Stomach. I can see how that could be the seat of your emotions. But we translate it heart here because that makes more sense to our culture. It's the seat of our emotions. And so what does he say? I, the Lord is my counselor, and him is truth. If you're wondering whether or not you should do something, if the Bible says don't do it, don't do it because it will not be good for you. The Bible says to do it, it will be good for you. So God's giving counsel, but then he goes on and says this, in the night, also my heart instructs me, my kidneys instruct me. What we have here is there's two types of wrestling at night that happen in the Psalms. One is that worry wrestling where you can't get sleep. You've been there before, haven't you? That one where you're like, is it morning yet? Or that one you're sitting there and you're looking at the clock and you say, if I go to sleep right now, I have four hours till that horrible alarm clock goes off. You've been to that one? That one where the, the cares cannot leave you? They're there. And then there is this other meditation, other wakefulness at night that happens. And it is when you are joyful, or when you are meditating and thinking about God or you are wrestling with God and his ways, and it's not a worry. It's you're taking these nights in which you should be sleeping, and your heart and attention has been turned to God. Those are the two kind of things you see in the Psalms. And to me, I'm, I'm not a morning person. I know it talks about in, in the Psalms, you know, waking up early and being in being God's presence. That's not usually when I do it. When I wrestle with the Lord, and when I, it's at night. It's late. Everybody's asleep. It's quiet. And that's when I can wrestle with the Lord and I can think about him and I can 
wrestle with his counsel and understand it. So what you have here with this situation where he says in the end of the verse 7 where he says, in the night also my heart instructs me, is he wrestles his will to the ground to believe the promises of God. Let me say that again. He is at night wrestling his will, the seat of his emotions down so that he can believe God. Because we are so great at rationalizing things. Do you know that? We can make anything right on our own. Well, I was tired, and that person was really annoying me. That's why I hit him with a sledgehammer. I know it's a little overkill, but they were really annoying me, and I really haven't slept. I know that's an absurd thing, but we do absurd gymnastics to rationalize our behavior. And what you have here is the psalmist wrestling with his will and saying, I will believe God and I will not believe me. Because our, our hearts will tell us the wrong thing. What the Lord's counsel, and he is our counselor, is right counsel. Thirdly, we see security. Fourthly, I'm sorry, we see security. And knowing God, there is security. That's why we can be preserved. In verses 8, it says, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is my right hand, I shall not be shaken. The Lord is at my right hand. The Lord is my strength. He is my partner. Okay? Verse 9, therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. This is not just a, this is not a, a happiness that stays here. It's one that moves to his whole being and comes out. Therefore, my heart's glad and, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. I'm secure in him. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, which is the place of the dead. It's the place of the wicked dead. Or let your Holy One see corruption. There's security here. The psalmist feels secure, but I want you to tell there's a deeper security here. And this psalm is known as a messianic psalm. Do you know what that means? It means that it's a psalm that is pointing to the Messiah. Now, how would you know that? How would you get that? Well, the, the New Testament writers, especially Peter and Paul, Peter in Acts chapter 2, verses 25 through 27, he quotes this in his great sermon at Pentecost. He quotes this as, as describing the resurrection as an Old Testament prophecy or scripture that pointed to the resurrection. Paul also would use this in Acts chapter 13 verse 35 as he was describing the resurrection. And there there are, if you go and read some commentaries or read people discussing that this psalm, because of those allusions, some people think that every part of this psalm is just almost Jesus talking verbatim. And it has nothing to do with David. Well, I think they're violating some rules of interpretation when they do that. And even and I'm telling you, there's some great men of God that have thought about, thought of it this way. So give credence to that. But I think the best way to understand what it means that 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 both Peter and Paul quote verses eight through ten in their epistles or in in their sermons, if you will, in Acts, is because this is pointing to a reality for God's people that has been made true and completed in Jesus. I want you to get it. Now, here's what I mean. What does it say? Look with me in verse 8. It says, I set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. So you have this guy who has set the Lord. You have a holy one of God, David, who has set God in front of him. 
And he says, because God is in front of me, I won't be shaken. I won't be moved. In verse 9, it says, therefore, my heart is glad. So there's a gladness in this confidence that Jesus, that there's a gladness in this confidence that, that nothing will, that can happen to David will shake him, and he's securing God. So he says, therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. He is completely secure that no matter what comes his way, that ultimately he will be okay. And then we see in verse 10, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, the place of the dead, the place of destruction, the Old Testament version of hell. And then it goes on to say, or you will, or let your see your holy one see corruption. So here's what I want you to understand. When this verse, when these verses are quoted by the New Testament writers talking about the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment in the sense of this. He is the ultimate one of God who has not seen corruption. Do you know why? Because he was dead and he was put in a grave. And he didn't do what everybody else who was put in a grave and his dead does. He did not disintegrate. He did not decompose. Because on the third day, air filled his lungs again. And he got up and he beat death. And he fulfills this promise because through Jesus... He's the first one that, 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 that God kept his promise with, that, that no one who comes that trusts in God will see corruption and death reign in their life, that they'll be secure in him. Jesus, he was the first one to fulfill that promise because death and corruption never didn't keep him down. But what a, he is also the one who begins that all who trust in God by faith, and especially now who trust in Jesus Christ, they will not see corruption. He is the fulfillment. He is the ultimate security that we have that no matter what comes our way, even if it's death, that we're secure. So these promises, every promise we have, and this is fulfilled here, every promise we have is yes and amen in Jesus, which means that he is the one. All the promises in the Old Testament are fulfilled in him, so we can be secure. This psalm is the security, ultimately pointing to our security as believers in Jesus. We will not be destroyed. You know why? Because Jesus wasn't destroyed. It's all God's promises, as, as 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, that all of God's promises are yes in Jesus. You will, not, you will not see destruction, not because you're smart, not because you're good, not because you have a positive attitude. You will have security only in this, that you trust in the one who died and did not see corruption but rose again. You have security no matter what comes your way. There's security for you in Jesus. His resurrection means that even if death comes your way, and it will come our way, I know we don't like to think it will, but even if it comes our way, he is our security. There is nothing in this life that can, that can shake your hope. There is nothing in this life that can take away Christ from you. There is nothing in this world that will make you see corruption. He is security. All and all in Jesus. It is, he is a sure hope. And in verse 11, we see a sure hope joy. In verse 11, it says, you make me, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Let me read it again. You make known to me the path. The path of light is made known. But who is Jesus? He's the way, the truth, and the life. 
path of life is made known in the scriptures, the way that we ought to behave, the way that we ought to live, the way we ought to love, the way we ought to approach God it is laid forth for us by God. And, he, and the Lord has made it known to us. He didn't hold it back. It says, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. In his presence, there is joy everlasting. At your right hand are pr- pleasures forevermore. But here, we know this, and we may assent that in him is the most pleasure, but oftentimes we find other things in the world more pleasurable. So I'm calling you to something. I'm calling you to wrestle. Now, this is not a call after you leave here to go out and, like, get one of those headgears and a leotard and, you know, go at it. Or if you're a WWE wrestler, don't hit somebody with a chair or jump off a top rope, okay? Please don't. That's not what I'm talking about when I talk about wrestling. You need to wrestle your will to the ground with the truth of God. And you need to say that there is more joy in Jesus than there are troubles in this life. That there are more joys and pleasure in Jesus, higher, better pleasures and joys in Jesus than there are pleasures and joys in this world. We are constantly bombarded with messages. We are constantly bombarded by lies, lies from our own heart, lies from outside of us, and lies from our enemy, the devil. We believe lies. We hear lies. There are lies all around that says, if you do this, it will make you happier. Just drive down the road and see the billboard. If you had this product, you'd be happier. Stay up late at night. And if you're not watching Netflix like most of the world and you're watching like TV still, you'll see an infomercial. You might be like, man, if I had that knife, I would cook more at the house. If I had that copper pot, I'd be in in better shape because I'd make more vegetables. Man, if I had this weight loss product or that, I would be better. That is going to give me more joy. That is going to be a good thing for my life. That is, and some of those things, products may come true, but I want you to know something. We are listening to messages and believing messages that are just not the truth. There is more joy in Jesus than there are troubles in the world. And there are better joys in Jesus than, are, than there are joys in the world. And so we have to wrestle our hearts down and commit our way to him. And in these dark seasons, if you might be in a dark season, here's what you do. You say with with Nehemiah in Nehemiah 8.10, that the joy of the Lord is my strength. It doesn't say be joyful and then What does it say? That my strength is the joy of the Lord. What is that? It's that you have determined and you have resolved that he's better. And you commit your way to him, even in the dark nights, even when you don't feel the joy, you're just going to say, the joy is the Lord of my strength. Even when the lines don't seem that pleasant that have fallen you, you say, the joy of the Lord is my strength. And his way is better than my way. His hard way is better than my open road that leads to destruction. His way is better. So you commit your way to him. How does that start? It's an everyday thing, but it does start. When you hear God's word preached, please, please, myself too, I'm preaching this to myself. Please don't say, I'll do this later. You must do it now. The call of the word of God is to respond now. So if you're here and you are far away from him, don't wait to commit your way to him. Turn from your sins and trust in Christ. He's the only hope.
okay? Don't wait. Just call on the name of the Lord. Turn from your sins. Believe. Confess. That is what it means to come to him. And if you're here today, don't wait, man. If I could just get my family life in order, then I will follow. Let me just get out of this period of darkness, and then I will make the joy of the Lord my strength. You will never come unless you come now. You, you have to move. You can't wait for it to be healed. That old hymn says, if you tarry until you're better, you'll never come at all. When you hear the word of God, you commit your way to him, him now, and you have to commit your way to joy. Committing your way to joy is saying, no matter what the Lord brings, no matter what lies I hear, no matter what hardships come my way, his way is better. His way is the fullness of joy, not my way. His way is right. There is more joy in the Lord than there are troubles in this world. His joys are better than any joy this world can have. The joy of the Lord is our strength. So confidently commit your way to Jesus. He is better. Let's pray. God, as we wrap up this time, I pray in my heart and in the hearts of everyone here that it would be very evident that we are committing our ways to you. Don't let us sit idly by as the word is preached, and don't let us believe lies, but let us know that you are better. Let us commit our ways to you, because in you, in your presence, is fullness of joy. We thank you, Lord. And we pray that you would be glorified in everything we do. In Jesus' name, amen.